out there who don't just discard people who are in prison, people who actually invest their time, donate their time and energy and just a lot of their resources to just giving us some of those inherent human needs of just being seen and heard and, and being able to connect with people out there. To call creating a book no small feat is an understatement. Authors write and edit often for years with the hopes of putting their work into the world. When books are finally published, the releases are usually marked by book tours and celebratory events across the country. For authors whose books were slated to publish during a pandemic, like Tessie Castillo's, that usual release process has been turned on its head. Castillo is a journalist and the author of Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, published by Black Rose on March 12, 2020. And while social distancing rules and stay-at-home mandates have made traditional book promotion impossible, Castillo's work carries no less weight. Crimson Letters is co-authored by Michael J. Braxton, Lyle May, Terry Robinson, and George Wilkerson, four men on death row in North Carolina. Castillo met her co-authors while conducting a journaling class. The project is a meditation on her unlikely friendship with the men. After all, classes conducted by outsiders on death row are rare indeed. And it features 30 essays in the men's own words about their experiences. On this episode of Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars, I had the pleasure of talking with one of the book's co-authors, George Wilkerson, about the power of storytelling and how he finds hope in his daily circumstance. Wilkerson is a PEN America Award winner for his 2018 memoir, Limp Grave Fur. His writing has been published in The Marshall Project, Compassion, and The Upper Room. I'm Kate Camel, an intern with PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for joining us for this special on the power of literary arts in times of crisis. George, thanks so much for joining us today. I wanted to start by just asking you how you are. Um, I know the conditions are really fraught in a lot of prisons during this pandemic. So how have things been for you? Well, that's a good question. Um, I've actually been asking myself that question uh, since the pandemic began. So as a writer, you know, that's one of the ways I try to uh, process my experiences. So for the past several months, I've actually been like just really thinking about everything that's been going on, trying to pay attention, you know, to what's going on on the news around me, you know, the world around me, inside prison, outside prison, just, you know, it's just a whole new experience. And, I, and, and it's so momentous um, that I just, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure how I'm dealing with it. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming. But I have been trying to um, write a poem uh, to try to capture just all these different little pieces and maybe try to bring it together, uh, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, I would love to, if you don't mind sharing. Okay. I call this uh, In Prison During COVID-19. My self-isolating family no longer visits me. We must keep everyone at arm's length, flatten the curve of yearning for connection. We must strap on masks before exiting ourselves. Many of us shelter in place instead. 
We flinch away from those who call for sneeze. The consequences of getting sick is a constant topic of conversation. Everybody knows the terms medical and attention only cohabit our sentences in prison like a loveless marriage. We disguise the few cleaning chemicals we get, filling mellow yellow steady green bottles with blue window cleaner, pink floor soap, clear disinfectant. They become contraband if inside ourselves. Camouflaged amid our sodas, we try not to accidentally drink them again. We stockpile ramen, coffee, batteries, soap, and stamps as money from our families dries up. I could last perhaps two months. Mail takes longer and longer to reach us, weeks sometimes. If pressed, most of us would admit the feeling increasingly lonely, abandoned, forgotten. Nevertheless, we check the news all day, praying not to recognize the names of people victimized while buying toilet paper. And then the pandemic began and changed some things. First, the, pro the prison prohibited all visitors. Now my family couldn't visit even if they tried. Next, the prison closed our barbershops, so many of us looked like mangy savages. <laughs> then the prison issued uniform masks to all of us, flimsy black fabric behind which we can relax, the veneers of indifference we had kept flexed on our faces. To reward us for not rioting, the prison started playing movies from Netflix every day, then posted a memo to warn us that any non-compliance with coronavirus restrictions will be punished. That is, to get too close to anyone now is to pay a $10 fine plus weeks in the hole. The prison is enforcing, not just encouraging, social isolation. To gauge the mandated spacing, we may stand apart, extending our arms toward each other. Our fingers may not touch. That's six feet. The right distance is as long as the grave is deep. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I really resonated yeah, with so you. much of that. I think just like, you know, the isolation and the fear and that constant want to check the news, I think is really overwhelming. Yeah. And also, I really love the line about they're trying to, you know, reward you not writing and playing Netflix to keep you distracted. So yeah. I'm glad you're still finding time to write like that because I think it's important that you're documenting. Yeah, for, that. That's for awesome. sure. Because, you know, one thing I've seen out there is like all this emphasis on the, the consequences of all this social isolation. And I've heard a lot of specialists go on the news and on NPR, you know, psychologists describing just the detrimental effects of the, just the isolation. And I was like, that's what prisoners go through all the time, even before this pandemic. So I wanted to, like, you know, create this sympathy between the reader outside of prison and then, like, the person inside of prison and just show, like, all these things that people can resonate with are actually just the everyday way of life in prison and the pandemic just made it worse um, absolutely yeah. yeah I think after this you know I hope at least people have more empathy and yeah sense of connection and and in the midst of all of this congratulations to you on publishing Crimson Letters that's so exciting and your essays are really beautiful contributions and just powerful accounts of your life that are leading up to your incarceration and your experience on death row um, and I just want to ask you what what it was like writing the book and if you could share a little bit about um, your contribution. Well, you know, one one thing about it is um, there are five of us who 
contributed to that book, and I'd have to say that Tessie probably has made hands down the biggest contribution. Um, you know, just even now she's still working on the book. Like these little things that we do are are nothing compared to all the work that she's doing. But even so, there are a lot of obstacles uh, for writing in prison, just from the persecution that comes from the prison, uh, just the uh, atmosphere, the hopeless, aimless atmosphere that's inherent in prison. Um, you know, trying to just a lot of the practical aspects of writing and getting published. Just there's so many obstacles. So I have to say, it's really gratifying to see a project to completion. You know, to have participated in the planning of the book and then just troubleshot. Um, all, each obstacle as it arose and, you know, just persevering in the face of like wanting to give up and wanting to just throw in the towel so many times just along the way. And we had to like keep encouraging each other. Uh, it's also validating um, because, you know, we, we can tell ourselves lies uh, about what we think we are and what we want to be and, and just kind of try to, I guess, like psychologically self-medicate with these with these ideas about ourselves, but, um, you know, saying I'm a writer and seeing something from the publication is like the difference between someone saying something and their actions speaking for itself. So it's really validating in that sense. Um, but also like the fact that you guys are wanting to interview me and talk to me about my contributions to the big book kind of makes me feel valued. Um, as if what I have to say actually matters because, you know, being where I am is, so much of what I say goes ignored. Um, I mean, even my own family, I think, still in many ways see me as the immature guy that I was when I came to prison. So it's, you know, sad to say that I'm still trying to convince them um, that I'm a different person now. Um, so, you know, and, and then there's a sense of accomplishment, I think, that any writer would feel. Um, so, yeah, there's just a lot that's tied into the book. And um, it's just a great experience overall. Yeah. I think that sense of validation is so important. So I'm glad that you feel that from this book. And I know that for me too, like writing has always been the way that I work through, um, just understanding like my own journey. And I'm wondering if you relate to that and if writing the book taught you anything new about yourself or, um, if it helped you work through anything that you've been struggling to kind of understand about your journey. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think part of, I mean, it's complicated, but one of the things I think that led me to prison was my inability to, um, rein in my emotions. So like, I would just be overwhelmed. Like if I got angry or depressed, I just, I honestly just mentally didn't know how to process it. Um, and writing is a great tool for processing what I'm going through, um, you know, like if I'm trying to think through a problem and life is just so complicated as it is, it's easy for me to get confused if I just try to think it, think it through in my head. And, um, you know, my prejudices or biases or my fears and desires, they just, they distort what's going on in my mind. And I think I came across a quote one time by Flannery O'Connor who said, um, I don't know what I think until I see what I say. And that just really resonates with me because writing is almost like taking all my thoughts and dumping them into a, um, a Scrabble tile bag. So like technically like all the thoughts are there in the bag, but in my head, 
uh, it's just really disjointed and uh, incoherent. But like when I write, it's like I'm dumping those tile, those tiles out on the paper, and I have the ability to rearrange uh, my thoughts and order my thoughts on paper. And as I reorder them on paper, I reorder them in my head. So um, I'm actually like imposing order on my mind when I write. So writing just for me is a way to think and reorder my thought processes. Totally. I love that Flannery O'Connor quote. That's great. And I know that um, Crimson Letters is actually banned in your facility. Could you share what it feels like to have written, you know, a project that you can't hold in your own hands or share with the people that you live with? And I'm just wondering if also if you've gotten any messages from people um, on the outside who've read the book and just about what it's meant to them. Well, the the fact that the book was banned, it's like both screwed up and um, validating at the same time because, like, you know, <laughs> people think that we're paranoid uh, when we talk about how the prison will do just about anything within their power that they think they can get away with anyway um, to just inhibit guys from doing anything productive. Um, and so, like, the fact that they banned the book and not only banned the book but banned it for a bogus reason um you know it just it sort of like validates just those those claims and hopefully like gives people on the outside evidence that these things actually do occur inside the prison system but it's also sad because i can't hold the book (laughs) you know so like part of having it um and feeling like i've produced something is like you know to the ability to hold something tangible in my hands and look at it and just kind of like admire it like you would a trophy on a shelf or something, but I can't do that. Uh, it's just an abstract concept uh, right now. But I did get to hold it for a little while before they banned it, uh, so that was pretty cool. I have that uh, memory. But one thing that stands out uh, about the second part of your question is um, before the book was published, my law, my own lawyers, and I think I don't know how the other guys' uh, lawyers were, but they were telling me I shouldn't write, I shouldn't do this project, and they were worried about the consequences of it. You know, they were just really trying to discourage me from contributing to the book project. But, you know, I believe in testing. You have 60 seconds remaining. I believe in my co-authors. Um, should I, do you want me to call back? Sure. That'd be great. Thanks, George. Okay. Okay. George Wilkerson. An inmate at Central Prison. This call will be monitored and recorded. So I'm sorry, that interrupted you in the middle of the question. Do you want to start um, the second part of the question over again or just pick up from where you were? Okay. Okay. So, yes, so like as it pertains to the second part of your question, um, one incident that particularly stands out, There, I have gotten feedback from several different sources about the book, but probably the most dramatic one was... Um, my, my attorneys. Uh, so like before um, the book was completed, just, you know, it took us years to bring this project to completion. And, um, you know, we made my lawyers aware of the book, I think maybe at least two years before we finished the project. So that from that time on, you know, they were just badgering me um, to try to discourage me from going through with the project. They were worried about my case and how it might negatively impact my appeal process. But, um, you know, as someone who is genuine in this transformation process, uh, as a spiritual person, I really believed in 
our project and then the goal for the project, you know, it's not about money. It's about getting a specific message out there and just demonstrating that, um, you know, no matter how bad the crime, no matter how bad the person may be perceived to be, uh, even if that were true about the people, uh, you know, the prisoner, they can change. People can change. Um, and so, you know, we really want to get that element of the message out there. And so I went through with the project anyway, and now that it's been completed and published, now I'm hearing all these, like, great compliments from my lawyers, and they're just really encouraging me and uh, praising everyone's uh, contributions and saying things like how brave they thought we were to do this project. And so it's just been like a complete 180 on their part. And that, to me, um, really... I think it means a lot to me just to see that they could change their perception or that their perceptions of us and what we're doing can change. Totally. And I think like exactly like what you're saying about, you know, you're writing, trying to really humanize um, your experience and those of the people around you. Um, it reminds me a lot of like you've, in addition to the book, you've written a lot of um, really thoughtful first person essays um, and one of them, Lim Grafer, received um, a Pan America Award for memoir writing. Um, and the piece is about your neighbors in prison who were both dying of cancer and just how your relationship with them really challenged you to think about um, your own death. And one of the themes in the piece that really resonated with me, um, especially lately, is just your reflections on how meaningful small moments of connection with other people um, can be. And I can only imagine, you know, what death row is like, but I definitely relate to those little moments just filling me with hope, um, especially in this time of isolation. Um, and so I was wondering if you could share some other sources of hope for you right now. Wow, that's a great question. Um, hope is such a, a big word that we throw around, right? I've, I've thought about it. I've tried to like um, define the word and, and just the feeling it just, really explore it right and what i've come up with just um is that hope is a pleasant feeling of expectation so it's like a a reasonable expectation that a specific outcome will occur so it's goal oriented um so like spiritually uh, you know i have some goals to like try to live a moral life and be a better person and, and it's like you said those granular moments um each presents its own um its own obstacles and, and avenues to success. And so as, as trying to live a, a right life in here where the culture is like completely antagonistic toward doing the right thing, um, it's almost hopeless uh, if, if I'm trying to do it in my own power because like this was the attitude that I had that led me to prison. Um, but being spiritual, I know I have access to a God who is stronger than I am. And so that gives me hope because God offers me, offers to empower me to do the things that I know that I should do, that, but that I have, uh, that I am too weak to do on my own. So that's, you know, spiritually speaking, that's where I get my hope to do the right thing and to just be a better person. But um, as it pertains to writing, um, you know, organizations like Penn uh, and people like Tessie specifically give me hope. Uh, because for a writer, you know, we want to get our stories out there. Uh, we want to get our message out there. And, and being in prison, there are so many just 
practical obstacles to doing it. Like we don't have access to computers. We don't have access in here to typewriters. Um, I had, for example, uh, won third in a poetry chapbook contest. And so like part of the prize was publication. So the, the publisher though told me, and this wasn't a prison, a prisoner writing contest. This was just a writer contest. So they didn't know I was in prison until I actually won the contest. Uh, so then when he found out I was in prison, the publisher actually said, look, if you can't help promote the book, then I'm not going to publish you. He's like, I'm not a charity. I'm not here to just do good deeds. I'm in this business for money. So if you can't help promote it and help us sell books, then I'm not going to publish your chat book. So it didn't get published, obviously, because I can't promote the book in the way that he was demanding that I promote it in the sense of going to book readings and traveling around and signing books and showing up at uh, just poetry events and writer's workshops. I, I can't do any of that. Uh, but like when Penn offers writers, um, you know, publication in your anthology or people like Tessie come along who really like are willing to take the bulk of the work onto their own shoulders and do these things that we can't do, that gives me hope. Um, because it says that, hey, someone believes in me, someone values what I have to say, someone, you know, there are people out there who don't just discard people who are in prison, people who actually invest their time, donate their time and energy and just a lot of their resources to just giving us some of those inherent human needs of just being seen and heard and, and being able to connect with people out there, so... Yeah. So like I say, you know, organizations like Penn and people like Tessie just really helped me in that regard. Absolutely. And lastly, I'm just, I'm curious what you have to say about the power of storytelling. Why do you think it matters? You know, if you would have asked me this question five years ago, I don't think I would have been able to answer it. <laughs> um, but I think now as a writer, I see that um, storytelling is, I think it's part of being human. Um, you know, just like, for example, um, when a wife comes home from work, if she's married, the husband is going to ask her how her day was at work. She's going to tell him a story. She's going to tell him about things that she went through throughout that day. Or if a child comes home from school, you know, the parent asked her kid, how was school? You know, and the kids are going to tell the parents some stories about their day at school or a doctor asks the patient, uh, you know, how did you get this injury? Uh, and the patient's going to tell the doctor a story about how they got that injury. You know, so storytelling is really just about communication, and it offers us the raw material um, to empathize with each other and to really get into the vicarious experience of, of others' experience to help us get outside of ourselves. Uh, so I just really think that storytelling, change the name, is just uh, essential to what it means to be human and to connect with others. Totally. Well, thank you so much, George, for joining us today and for your really thoughtful answers. I really enjoyed getting to speak with you. Yeah, thank you guys for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. To read more of Wilkerson's work, visit penamerica.org and themarshallproject.com. This podcast is part of our weekly temperature check series, which also includes original reportage by currently incarcerated writers and links to other journalism and advocacy efforts. Temperature check can be found through our Works of Justice portal at pen.org slash works of justice.
This episode was mixed by Robert Pollock with support from Brookie McGelvin, researched and hosted by myself, Kate Camel, and produced by Kate Meissner for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for listening.